Christ Church Kingwood is a Christ-centered church that seeks to proclaim the gospel in both word and deed by glorifying God and making disciples of Jesus Christ. Join us now as we worship together in the ministry of the word. Great is thy faithfulness, Lord, unto me. Well, good morning. Right in front. How are you doing? <laughs> I got to move these things because I don't have water and I'm like a, I don't know, fidgeter. If I see it near me, I'm going to end up touching it. Um, <laughs> well, good morning. Uh, my name is John Mark. If you don't know me, I'm one of the pastors here, one of the elders here. Um, if you're visiting with us, we're making our way through uh, the book of Philippians. I think we've been about 10 weeks. This may be our 10th week uh, in the book. Uh, and so we're going to dive into chapter 3, verses 1 through 11 today. Uh, chapter 3, verses 1 through 11. This is a rich text. So much is in this, uh, these few verses, so there's a lot to cover. So let me read it, and then we will dive in. Philippians says this, Finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same thing to you is no trouble to me and is safe for you. Look out for the dogs. Look out for the evildoers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. For we are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. Though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also, if anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day, of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law of Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, and as to righteousness under the law, blameless. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ." Indeed, I count everything as lost because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I might gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes through the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, a righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection, and may share in his sufferings and become like him in his death, that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection from the dead. Let's pray. Gracious Father, what a reminder in the words from the song this morning. We need you. You are our righteousness, our hope. God, as we open your word this morning, speak to us. Show us more of who you are and more of who we are, and lay our sin more barely before us, that we might repent and run to you and cling to your son, Jesus. It's in his name we pray. Amen. So there's so much to cover. I struggled with how to dive into this, and I like, as you know, like literature and, and poetry, and I'm not going to do a poem today, so you're in luck. Um, but I was thinking, as I was looking at this, what we have is Paul warning 
uh, these Philippian believers about these, these guys that are coming in, that are going to uh, spread these, these lies, these dogs, as he calls them, these evildoers, these mutilators of the flesh. And so there's, there's a sense of warning. And as I was thinking through this, I thought about uh, Charles Dickens, right? That's probably a phrase you never said. I thought about Charles Dickens, um, <laughs> but I, said, I, I had this thought, uh, a Christmas carol, right? So you have a Christmas carol, and in this you have Jacob Marley, and if you, if you remember this, maybe you haven't seen it, but maybe you saw like the Muppet version, um, which had a super serious Michael Caine, and then Muppets, uh, good version if you want to see that. But what you have in, in a Christmas carol is um, Jacob Marley, who was Scrooge's uh, partner, who passed, who was dead. He comes back as this ghost, and he's wrapped in chains, but the chains aren't chains. The chains are actually the, the works of his, his former life. And so the chain is actually made up all of all these deeds and money bags and purses and things that he had accumulated in his life that were just weighing him down. And he goes to uh, Scrooge, and he is saying, hey, you're going to be visited by these three apparitions, right? These three um, um, ghosts and uh, he, he's warning Scrooge of this this coming uh, judgment, right? Of being held accountable to to what he is placing his hope in, right? And he's coming there bound with the chains from what he made and what he valued in his former life. The things he thought that would save him now are the chains that bind him down and serve as a warning to Scrooge, right? And so I thought of this, this picture, right, of, of um, Marley visiting him and reminding him of, of the, the trappings of this life. And so as we dive into our text this morning, that's kind of the framework that I want to put in your minds, is Paul warning these uh, 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 Philippian believers of the, the dangers of what you place your hope in and your trust in. And so let's dive back into the text this morning. Let's get to it. Uh, and we're going to start right in, in verses 1. He says, finally, my brothers, and just for, for clarity's sake, because he says finally and then says finally again later, this is not like some Baptist preacher finally where he's just tricking you. This is more like a so then uh, or more of a summarizing, but as for the rest. So Paul is not saying finally, my brothers. He is saying so then, my brothers, in, in light of all of this, as for the rest, rejoice in the Lord. And so he's beginning this warning, right, with this idea of rejoicing in the Lord, and this is continuing this theme that we've seen from the last two chapters, right? We can't, we can't cover everything and go back all that we've talked about, but our whole series has been about joy. Joy over uh, rejoicing regardless of circumstances. Rejoicing over, like he says in chapter 2, of being poured out to the point of death. Rejoicing in, in suffering for Christ. Rejoicing in, in obedience and sacrifice. Rejoicing over Timothy and Epaphroditus as they have suffered well and continued on in the faith for the sake of the gospel. Uh, and then he is also, they're not all downers, right? He's reminding them to rejoice over the unity that the gospel brings. It's the last seven weeks that we've been working through, and he's continuing it here. There is is at the beginning of this warning, the overarching reminder to rejoice. Paul's about to dive into some pretty heavy, pretty difficult stuff and honestly use stronger language in this than he really does anywhere else uh, as far as like just the, the rawness of the, the words he uses. 
this is more strong and more raw than anywhere else uh, that he's written. But even in that, he still feels compelled to begin with and return to joy because the greatest thing, the thing that brings true joy is knowing Christ Jesus, right? What we sung just a few minutes ago, I need you, oh, I need you. And it is bubbling up in him. So even at the beginning of this warning, there is this reminder to rejoice, Because there is nothing more beautiful, more joyful than knowing Jesus Christ. And so he says, to write the same things to you is no trouble for me and it is good for you. And again, just for clarity's sake, what he's saying, he's not addressing the things he's already addressed in this text or in this book, but more just in general what he has addressed to them in other teachings, perhaps other letters. It doesn't really make clear, but these are things that he has already communicated to the Philippians. And he is saying, it is no trouble for me to remind you of these things, and it is good for you. A little spiritual review is entirely helpful, and it's easy. And so he is going to quickly cover these things, right? So what is he revisiting? What is he revisiting? viewing, look down at verses two and three. He says, watch out for the dogs. Look out for the evildoers, for those who mutilate the flesh. For we are the circumcision who worship by the spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. Some pretty harsh language, right? To be thrown around at people. Watch out for the dogs, for the workers of evil, for mutilators of the flesh. You see his reminder to say the same things to you is no trouble for me. It's a warning that he is diving into. Paul was warning these believers of this recurring problem that we see. We saw it when we went through Galatians and we see it throughout the New Testament. Uh, It's a recurring problem in these early churches that Paul planted He's mentioned these people before to the Philippians, and now he's saying a little spiritual reminder is going to be good for us all. So who were these people? Who were these dogs, these evil uh, workers of evil? Uh, and just to cover it broadly, there, there were, um, as, as the gospel spread, there were many people, many devout Jews who were interested in and prepared to uh, believe that Jesus was the Messiah they w- had waited for, right? Many devout Jews who said, yeah, this could be him. Let's, I'm, I'm in for this. But they were not prepared enough, it seems, to let go of their understanding of the law and the requirements to keep them. This Jewish sect thought that Gentiles, for for Gentiles, that is for non-Jewish people, to accept the Jewish Messiah, they must first become Jews themselves. Meaning that any Gentile believer, these people thought, would have to be circumcised and take on the the responsibility and the burden of observing, observing the law of Moses completely. And so they're saying, yes, Christ frees you, but now submit under this yoke of slavery to the law, is how they saw this. Uh, and so more, more plainly, what they thought uh, was that Christianity, this, this Christ followers were just a sect of, of Judaism. To them, Jesus was just capping off, right? Just, just topping off the last little bit of what they needed. It was like Judaism 2.0, right? Um, in the biblical text, these, these are often referred to as Judaizers, 
So what's the problem, right? Paul is, Paul is saying, watch out for these people. What's the problem? Why is Paul warning these Philippians believers and basically every uh, church he corresponds with uh, in the New Testament, why is he warning them about this group? What is the big deal? You see, these, these people, these Judaizers, had an entirely different, entirely wrong view and understanding of the Hebrew Scriptures, that is, the Old Testament. And so, because they understood wrongly, they miss represented and misinterpreted the gospel of Jesus Christ. Instead of as, as saving work, they said it's merely an additional uh, addition for information in the observance of Jewish laws and customs. It was Judaism plus a little extra. It was the Jewish religion plus a little more. To them, that's what they, they saw. They saw the Old Testament scriptures, the Old Covenant, as uh, establishing these eternal structures of religious observances that were merely capped off by Jesus Christ, rather than understanding as Paul did and as we do, that the Old Testament scriptures, instead of just uh, pointing to the events and to the, the law of God, they also point to Christ. Instead of anticipating, uh, or instead of seeing that and understanding as Paul did and we do, that the Old scriptures, Old Testament scriptures anticipate Christ's coming. They look forward in joy to his coming, and they even announce his coming. And you see, it is in our, and it is his, in, it, oh gosh, <laughs> it is in his coming that we have our ultimate hope. The Old Testament scriptures in everything pointed to Christ. And we could spend forever, right, breaking down the Old Testament and where they had deviated from the truth, where they did not see it. But quickly, you can just see, uh, if you look at the story of Jesus flipping over the tables in John 2, right? Uh, the Old Testament scriptures described the temple, but they failed to see that the temple was never just a temple. It pointed to Christ and who Christ uh, and how Christ would be the temple for us. If you look at that section in chapter 2 of John as he is flipping those tables, you see what he says. He says, uh, destroy this temple and I will raise it up in three days. He is saying, I am the temple. And so these Judaizers were failing to see that he was the true temple, that it was Christ who would become the great high priest for us, right? Making sacrifices of his, with his own blood on our behalf. The Passover was never just the Passover, but it was also pointing to Christ who would be the Passover lamb covering us with his blood. So this group failed to understand that the hope of the scripture was not in the outward observance of the letter of the law, but in the coming of Christ who would fulfill the law for us. This group wanted the Gentiles to convert to be circumcised. For them, uh, as many conservative uh, Jews at the time, circumcision was, was a sign of entrance into the covenant. It was a defining part of who they were as a people, right? That's, that's how they saw circumcision. It was the entrance into the covenant, a defining part of who they were, so much so that this group actually began to refer to themselves as the circumcision. I would have like loved to have been a fly on the wall when they were workshopping that name. I don't, I don't understand at what point that became. 
I don't know, the one that won. That, it, it's confusing, but that's how, that's how important it was, this <laughs> super awkward shorthand for being Jewish. We are the circumcisions. They were defined by this symbol of the covenant. You see, what was happening here and what Paul was warning them about was these, these uh, Jewish people were going from church to church after Paul and that he had planted and that he was working in. And they were misleading people by saying, in effect, that Gentiles could not enjoy the blessing of the gospel of Jesus Christ until they had undergone the circumcision and thereby pledged themselves to live under and be subject to these ancient Jewish laws. But Paul's big beef, right, is we will, and, and we'll see that uh, he's told them this before, is that anybody who says, uh, anybody who says that it is Jesus plus something doesn't really understand the Old Testament scripture. Because it makes clear that it is not the outward sign of circumcision, but rather the circumcision of the heart that is most important, not the literal circumcision of the flesh. And there are multiple verses, and I'll put a few up on the screen behind me, and we'll just mention a few. You have Deuteronomy 10, 16, right? In reminding, in this section, reminding Israel of what God has commanded them, he tells them not to literally make sure you're circumcised, right? But he says, rather, to circumcise your heart and be not stubborn in repentance to God. Or in Jeremiah 9.35, where God is reminding people that there is a time that is coming where even those uh, who were circumcised in the flesh, it says merely circumcised in the flesh, will be uh, held accountable. The Old Testament makes a difference that these uh, Jewish people missed uh, a difference between the physical observance and the spiritual observance of a circumcised heart. And Paul makes this point crystal clear in Romans 2.29. But a Jew is one inwardly, he says, and circumcision is a matter of the heart, by the spirit, not by the letter. That is the letter of the law. His praise is not from man, but from God. And so what Paul is saying, he's saying that the defining characteristic of a Christian is that he or she has undergone the circumcision of the heart, not won by the letter of the law. That is the defining characteristic of a Christian. And so that's who these people were that were infiltrating, right? And I know I spent a while describing them to you, but you need to understand the stark difference of what they were claiming and what Paul is reminding them of. And so back to verses 2 and 3. Paul is warning these Philippian churches about these dogs, these evildoers, these mutilators of the flesh. And there's, there's an irony here in the way Paul is, is talking and the way he is uh, laying out his warning. He's flipping the words and the works of these Judaizers on, the head, on their heads. You see, these Jews love to call themselves the circumcision and they would frequently refer to Gentiles, those who were not what they were, as dogs. And this wasn't like uh, cool, like lapdog poodles. These were like mangy, wild dogs is how they were referring to them. This was uh, a, a very derogatory 
word that they used for Gentiles. But he is saying that in reality, these Jews are actually the dogs because they have, in fact, rejected Christ. They claim the circumcision outwardly, but do not have it in their heart and are not circumcised in their heart. And so they are actually the ones who are outside. They are the dogs. And he says that these good works that they try to do in following the law are nothing more than evil works done in self-righteousness. And the circumcision that they cling to isn't a circumcision at all, but really just a mutilation of the flesh. There's a, there's a play in the words there in Greek and a difference between saying cut away and cut off. And so he is saying that they are really not, not circumcising anything, not, not holding to anything. They are really just mutilating themselves. And so he is saying these, these people be on the lookout for them because they are placing things in the column of Christ. And he says in contrast to that in verse 3, that in reality, they are not the circumcision. In reality, we are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. You see, it is because of the changed life and heart brought about by the gospel of Jesus Christ. It is we who are in Christ who worship by the Spirit of God. It is we who glory in Christ Jesus, and it is we who are to put no confidence in the flesh. Put no confidence in the flesh. Because it is neither by the circumcision of the flesh that we are justified, nor is it by some ability or nobility that we possess in the flesh. He is saying, we put no confidence because we worship by the Spirit of God. And Paul, if he wanted to, certainly could have boasted, especially in the Jewish circles, about who he was. These guys came in and said, look, you got to be Jewish to do this. And Paul is like, okay, I'm more Jewish than any of you. I've got that down. Look how he continues in verse 4. Though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also. If anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. It's like the most braggy he gets. And he begins to list out. He's not... he, he begins to list out this uh, resume, right? Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law of Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. And so he's like, I got more. I got you beat. I got you in spades. And he's not just dogging, no pun intended, on these Judaizers out of some jealous frustration or past infraction he feels bad because he got neglected, right? This is not some jealous comparison. Rather, he is saying it out of experience. In these verses from four to six, he's dropping this impressive resume that would top even the most conservative of the Jewish elite of the time. He was not offering exaggeration for effect. He says, I have reason for boasting. This was an A-plus resume report card that he was handing in. It says he was circumcised on the eighth day, according to the law, according to the custom, right? He was a a natural-born Jew. He was from birth a Jew. But not only that, 
he belonged to the right tribe. There were two tribes that stayed loyal to the Davidic dynasty, 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 whatever. Uh, and they were, um, they were, those tribes were, were thought highly of, and he was of one of those, the tribe of Benjamin. So as far as lineage and family was concerned, he says, I'm a Hebrew of Hebrews. Right? As far as schooling and vocation, it's, he was trained in Jerusalem as a Pharisee, right? He was born in a Roman, colis, uh, a Roman colony and was under Rome, but he was uh, trained and steeped in the Jewish religion, so much so that he studied as a Pharisee, right? A strict, disciplined, vastly respected sect of Jews known for their obsessive nature and desire to follow the Mosaic law. And he says, as for commitment, I gotcha. I was a persecutor of the church, right? You see that in, in Acts before the Damascus Road. He was standing in judgment as people were stoned. He was traveling about uh, imprisoning Christians. He was a persecutor of the church as far as commitment was concerned. And he was, by the measure of man, blameless, faultless, is how he concludes verse 6. Paul's resume was more than impressive. It was stellar. It was out of this world. He was honestly more impressive in, in a Jewish world than any of these warning the, that he's warning the Philippians about. Paul had reason to put confidence in his flesh. He had all of these men and all that they were reclaiming, that they were claiming was required for these Gentile believers. He had it bigger and better than any of them could claim. But to this claim, to the, the confidences that he could have had in the flesh, he says that they are worthless. Look what he says in verse 7. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Listen to that again, brothers and sisters. The gain he had, he now counts as loss. The security of position, of power, of family name, of lineage, of schooling, all of those things now count as loss. And the only thing left standing, right, if you were to put this on the, the ledger, the only thing left in the credit column is now Christ alone. And just so we don't mistake him, right? Just so we don't think that he's overstating for effect, he continues in verse 8. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I might gain Christ. Everything is loss. And this was not metaphorical. He lost everything, status, friends, family, home. He was this homeless, wandering traveler going from town to town, making his living, uh, making tents, and sometimes not even that, partially blind. He endured all kinds of suffering. If you want a full list of the accounts, you can thumb over to 2 Corinthians 11, 23 through 29. There's a complete list there if you just want to peruse what all he gave uh, up and what all he suffered for the sake of Christ. But he's not complaining. This isn't complaint. He's not lamenting the loss and saying, ah, this is what I had and now I have this. He is saying everything good that I thought I had was rubbish. Rubbish. 
That word sounds super polite in English, but it is, it is dung. It is excrement. Um, it's, it's a sharp, smelly word. Um, I don't know why I wrote that in my notes, but I did. I feel like that's a good description, though. It's, it's a harsh word, one that we would probably only whisper in polite conversation, right? Uh, but he considered everything he had as like a flaming bag of this excrement in order that he might gain Christ, right? Or as he says, and continue to be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from a law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. Paul is reminding these Philippian believers, reminding us of what we should fundamentally value. On the one, th- one side is everything the world has to offer. For him, for Paul, it was this rarefied, privileged space of the intellectually learned and disciplined Jewish culture. And on the other side is Jesus Christ and the righteousness that comes from God by faith in him. And Paul insists that there is no contest. There is no debate. All else is rubbish. All else is loss to me for the gain that I have in Jesus Christ. It is Jesus Christ and the the righteousness of God by faith that is the incomparable winner. He says we are to put no confidence in the flesh because this is it. This righteousness of God that comes by faith. And righteousness here could be sometimes trans and sometimes is translated as as justification. This was important to Paul and important to the Jewish understanding. You see, righteousness was seen by Paul in his his pre-day or pre-Christ day, his Saul, uh, the days as Saul before the Damascus Road encounter. Um, righteousness to to him then and to these Judaizers is is something to be achieved by the observance of the law. But he's saying now that Christ has come, Paul, who has experienced Christ, sees that the righteousness really is a gift from God which comes through faith in Christ, not by anything achieved or worked for. Paul is reminding these as they are to keep watch that the the ultimate goal, the ultimate gain is that knowing, it is knowing Christ and that is the only thing that matters. It is not position, it is not power, it is not placement, it is not ritual or right. It is knowing Christ and to be found in him. Now, this idea of knowing Christ, right? There are two Greek words that are used in the New Testament. They're both translated know. One is an intellectual know, the understanding here, but one is a knowledge of the heart. And Paul is saying that to know him, he is saying it is an experiential knowledge. Everything is worthless garbage compared to the experience of knowing Christ intimately, actually, experientially. And so Paul is warning with such strong language about these dogs, these men who would come in because they seek to add observance, to add things to Christ, to the righteousness found in faith. And they want to say do and work. Now, as I, as I prepared this sermon, I, I'm going to take a, a, a guess here. 
safe assumption and say that most of us in this room probably are not greatly tempted or enticed to boast in our Jewish ancestry, our Jewish heritage or upbringing or our ritual obedience to the Mosaic law. I may be wrong. Maybe there's somebody in here. But I think that's a pretty safe bet. And this is the, the sticking point that's been rattling around in my brain all week. Brothers and sisters, what are you placing your confidence in? Are you placing your confidence in the flesh? And by that, I do not mean, as these Judaizers did, a confidence in ritual observance of the Mosaic law. What are you placing your hope and confidence in? Is it your wealth? Your status? The education you've received? Your, your vocational experience and expertise? Maybe it's this industrial and entrepreneurial spirit you have. Maybe it's your family, your social status, your physical fitness, or your physical unfitness for that matter. Your body image, maybe it's the way we, we raise our kids, the choice of schooling, our political affiliations. What are you placing your hope in? Paul is saying we must be on guard that we will not put one thing in greater or equal importance of, as Christ in our hearts. We must count everything else as loss compared to the surpassing worth of knowing Jesus Christ, my Lord. So the reflection for us is, what are we putting in that credit column? Is it, yes, Jesus, but I like Jesus more when I have money in the bank. Or, yes, Jesus, but this is pretty good too. What are you putting in that credit column that is not Christ? What less important thing are we, we uh, prone to brag about or maybe try to track into and tack onto Jesus the same way these Judaizers were doing? We must, as Paul reminds us, watch out for these kind of people. Watch out for this own desire in our heart to place Christ with other things and thereby make him and the faith in him a little less important than they, than they are. Paul is saying these things are not the ones, or these people are not the ones to follow and to imitate. And he's going to expound in the coming verses in chapter 3 about the ones who, who are worthy of imitation. But he's saying that these are not the ones to follow. And so, church family, hear this. We must not be deceived by the lies of the world around us. There are millions of voices, right? Whether it's media or apps or, or um, people or various directions, this, all this information is coming at us from every direction, telling us what we need, how we need it, and what will make us happy. And so Paul is saying in reminder, you know these things, brothers and sisters, but remember, remember the hope we have in Christ. We must Silence those voices. We must look out instead for those who desire and whose constant hope is the calling of Christ Jesus. We must surround ourselves with those who constantly boast and delight in Christ alone. We 
We must surround ourselves with those who have at the center of their worship, center of their love, center of their lives, Christ Jesus. One theologian said, and I, I may have quoted this before, I love this reminder that as we look at the world around, a, a fit body with a sick soul is not something that we should envy. And, and nor is a full bank account with a bankrupt heart something to be envied. Our hope is Christ alone and knowing him Do not be deceived enough as you listen to this to think, okay, self-righteousness, really, we can just categorize that as doing religious things for selfish reasons. Don't be deceived to think that that is the only definition of self-righteousness. If we place our hope in our bodies, in our relationships, in our bank accounts, in anything apart from Christ, we are placing our righteousness in ourselves. It may not be the Mosaic law, but it is a law unto ourselves that we put in place of Christ. And we will not find hope. We will not find peace. We will not find Christ Jesus in it. So Paul saw the hollowness, the emptiness of a life of self-righteousness. And he concludes our text this morning with verses 10 and 11. He says, I count it all as loss. Everything that the world values, everything of my former life, I count as lost so that I may know him and the power of his resurrection. So I may share in his suffering, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible, I may attain the resurrection from the dead. Paul's hope was that he would know Christ more. That's how he's summarizing this, right? He's, he's wrapping up that I may know Christ in the power of his resurrection. Now listen, brothers and sisters, Paul knew Christ. This was 30 years down the road from Damascus. This was 30 years of knowing Christ, of walking with him. It is not some arrival point to Paul. He wanted to know him more and more, to know him, to experience him, and it says to experience the power of his resurrection. So the power of his resurrection. Paul, in his his letter to the Ephesians, makes it clear what this is, this power of the resurrection. It is the power of God in Christ Jesus that is at work in us. He's saying, I want to know the power of resurrection. In Ephesians 1, 18 and 19, he says, so that you may know what this hope is to which you have been called, that you may know what the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints and what it is, or what is the immeasurable greatness of his power towards us who believe, according to the working of his great power that he worked out in Christ Jesus when he raised him from the dead and seated him at the right hand in heavenly places. And so he is saying, I desire to know more and more my Savior and to know the power of his resurrection. That is not a selfish claim or power grab to become more powerful, but he wants to know the power of the resurrection to be made more conformed to the will of God. He's saying his hope, our hope, brothers and sisters, is in the power of the resurrection of Christ Jesus. The power of God to transform the hearts of men from stone to living. 
Our hope lies in knowing Christ Jesus and knowing him alone and everything else that you are placing your hope in is worthless, is rubbish. Everything else is like the chains of Jacob Marley, right? Wrapped around him, he built his world, his empire and said, look at my stuff. And now those are the chains that are holding him down. And so, dear ones, put no confidence in the flesh. Put no confidence in the chains of this life. Call them all rubbish. And leave only Christ Jesus in that credit column. Let's pray. Gracious Lord, may we know you. Not know of you intellectually alone, but let us know you in the knowledge of the heart. Let us not settle for outward religious signs, but Father, let us find a righteousness in your Son, Jesus Christ, through faith in him, through the power of his resurrection that we may have hope, that we may have this joy, this all-encompassing joy that Paul is writing about, this dripping from his pen, that regardless of circumstance, we have hope and we have joy because we have Christ. Let that be our call. Let that be our song, the very beat of our heart. We pray this all in your son's name. Amen. Praise God from whom all blessings flow. Thank you for worshiping with us through the preaching of God's Word. We exist to glorify God by making disciples. We would love to have you join us in person as we gather together on Sundays at 10 a.m. at the Covenant Preparatory School on Hamblin Road in Kingwood, Texas. To learn more about Christ Church Kingwood, visit our website at ChristChurchKingwood.org. Peace.